We've been doing 1 Peter recently on Sunday mornings. And uh, I should have just kept going into 2 Peter. But uh, as I mentioned to you Sunday, we're going to be in just a couple of weeks studying the book of Colossians, talking about the sufficiency of Christ, accepting no substitutes for Jesus. In a, in a secular age where a lot of people are trying to offer different spiritual solutions, uh, Paul holds up Jesus Christ as the only answer. And so we're going to be looking uh, in the book of Colossians in a couple of weeks. Uh, but since we didn't continue going into Second Peter here on Wednesday night, next couple of weeks before we jump in to Nehemiah, I want us to cover some well-known classic passages in the book of Second Peter. So find Second Peter 1 tonight. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And you're going to be in math class tonight. You like math? Math class tonight. We're looking tonight, tonight's title, Arithmetic for Believers. Arithmetic for Believers. Paul says beginning, uh, Peter, I said Paul. Peter begins in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly love, affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the greatest stories of redemption is that that is found in Acts chapter 9. Of course, you know the story in Acts chapter 9. Rabbi Saul is on his way to Damascus and he's got letters from the, the chief priest and the high priest because when he gets to Damascus, he is going to find Christians there and he's going to arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem and have some of them put on trial and he hopes, I'm sure, to have some of them put to death just like Stephen was put to death. And in his journey, what happened? Blinding light, knocked him off the horse. Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. 
Of course, that was the conversion and the call of Rabbi Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest stories of redemption in the New Testament. Sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, I wish I could be more like Paul. Why is God not using me more? Why is my life not as fruitful as somebody like his? I'll hear people say something of that nature. How can I be more useful? What's it going to take? Well, I think our text tonight is going to shed some light on that. These verses say something to us about different stages in our Christian walk and what will be involved in being more useful to God. The passage we're looking at today is an encouragement to put a priority on what you and I need to do to feed our soul and to grow. Second Peter is going to close out by saying, Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that salvation is of God. His calling of our lives is of God. But that does not mean that there is not a human response. God's the initiator. God's sovereign. It's God who saves. But again, there's a response that you and I have to make. And a response you and I have to continue to make in our Christian life to grow. Now, don't forget about the personality of the man who wrote this. Here was a man who himself lacked faith at one period of time. Remember when he stepped out of the boat and started sink? Lord, save me. He didn't always have faith. Uh, here's a man who also at times lacked courage at the arrest of Jesus. Remember he had said previously, though everybody else turns away from you, I won't. And he ran. And he denied Christ three times. So as we read First and Second Peter, very human character. With weaknesses just like us. And yet after the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came on him. He was, he was a transformed man to the point he was never the same again. Right? So he knew defeat. And he knew victory. He writes that we might know victory ourselves. First thing I want you to look at tonight is the believer's provision. The believer's provision. We'll look next at the believer's progress. But first of all, the believer's provision. Write down verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He begins by talking about redemption. And his focus is, first of all, on salvation in the past tense. He wants us to see what has happened in the case of every born-again child of God. We learn that... We have what we need 
to live the Christian life. No one can ever say God has called me to live the Christian life, but he's not supplied me with what I need. Yes, he has. People used to say, you know, they've thrown me to the wolves. You've heard that expression countless times, no doubt. At work, you get an assignment that's over your head. They threw me to the wolves, right? A business lady or a businessman might say, they, they didn't give me the needed budget or they didn't give me the needed personnel to get the job done. They've thrown me to the wolves. Well, nobody can say that when it comes to faith in Christ. That God hasn't given us what we need. When God calls, God equips. In fact, in Colossians 2.10, the Bible says that we are complete in Christ. Now, let's see from these verses what it is that God gives us. What is it that God provides? And the emphasis here is what God has done. First of all, in verse 3, God gives us conversion. He speaks of God's call and he speaks of a true knowledge of him. Ephesians 2.1 says that we all come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. And then God, by his grace and love, quickens us and he makes us spiritually alive. And so conversion is that process by which we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Bible is very clear on the fact that you and I were estranged from God. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we're under God's wrath. The wages of sin is death. The Bible is very clear in pointing that out about our pre-conversion state. Separated from God, separated from having eternal life. That's the natural state of every person on planet earth who's not been born again. Nobody comes into this world ready to go to heaven the way they are. Okay? Now, think with me what men try to do to fix the problem but won't fix the problem. Church membership won't take care of the problem. Baptism, if all it is is baptism with, without a new birth, all baptism's going to do is get you wet. It's not going to fix the problem. Loving your neighbor as yourself, important as that is, is not going to fix the problem. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Folks, what happened there at the cross? At the cross, Christ bore all of your sin and all of my sin. All of the wrath of God against sin was directed at Jesus that, that, so that the perfect sin sacrifice would be made. 
But then remember that the, the temple, the, the veil was torn in two, symbolizing what? That access into the Holy of Holies was now open through Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with God through Christ, you can go boldly into the very throne room of God. And that comes only through Jesus Christ. No other way. You and I could not pay that price. Christ and Christ alone came to pay it. Now, conversion involves believing that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he's done what he said he would do. And in conversion, we become people who are spiritually dead become spiritually alive because of the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us to Christ and changing our hearts. That spiritual new birth that takes place. We repent of our sins and we place our faith in Christ. And God changes us. What happens? We're a, new, we're a new creature, a new creation. And so when we talk about conversion, we have to talk about that. We have to talk about the initiating work of the Holy Spirit and God bringing about our salvation and then our response of repentance and faith. Conversion has a starting point. Now, God may have been working in your heart for months and months, even years and years, but, folks, there was a starting point. There was a time that you were saved. There was a time that you were born again, a very specific moment. Again, God may have been breaking you and wooing you and doing all sorts of work in you to draw you to faith in Christ, but there was a moment in time that you were actually born again. And I say that because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I have been a Christian all of my life. I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. Conversion has a starting point. Secondly, uh, concerning God's provision or the believer's provision, what God's done, He's given us His Spirit, verse 3 talks about. At the moment of conversion, a guest moves into your heart. And He is there from then on. You can grieve Him. You can quench him, or you can be filled with him. You can be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have a power working in and through you that you did not have before. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our counselor. A lost man can't live by the Lord's instructions. The commandments, the, the book of 1 John says that to the lost person, they're burdensome. But a saved man or a saved woman finds them to be a delight. Because there's this new power in our lives that was not there before. Look at what Peter says here. We share in God's divine nature. 
Now listen here to what Peter is saying and what he is not saying. Is he saying you become divine? No. But we share God's divine nature because his Holy Spirit now resides in us. And then thirdly, we see in verse 4, God has given us his promises that are precious and magnificent. Peter's referring here to the word of God. God's promises in his word are great because they come from a great God. And they lead to a great life if we'll follow them. They're precious because their value is beyond calculation. There's no way you could put a price tag on God's promises. The Word of God will instruct you, it will nourish you, it will be your counselor. And so when your life needs direction, turn to the resource God has given you. By God's Spirit, God will take His Word and He'll literally make it come alive to your heart and your soul. David said in Psalm 119 that God's Word had become like a friend to him. God's precepts had become his counselor. So the believer's provision, God gives us what? Conversion, His Spirit, and His promises that are precious, His Word. And then along with that, fourthly, what's something else God does? According to verse 4, gives us a new nature. A new nature. If you're a Christian, you are a new creation in God. Christ. So you have a new nature that salvation brings, you have a new guest in your life, the Holy Spirit, and you have a new resource. Now folks, talk about an extreme makeover, there it is. Knowing God has done all of this for us, what can we experience? If you go back to verse 2, you see what we experience, grace and peace grace and peace and Peter writes he says essentially it is my hope and prayer that grace and peace will be the arenas that you live in and walk in on a daily basis it's my prayer that you'll go on experiencing God's grace and peace now of course if we're saved we have God's grace and peace Nothing can rob us of that. But oftentimes on the practical level, we live in defeat. But Peter says, may you experience it and may God's grace and peace be multiplied in you. And then according to verse 4, a fifth thing that God gives us, we have a, a way out of the way of the world. We do not share, he says in verse 4, the fate of the world. We do not have to participate in the ways of the world. So what does God provide the believer? Conversion. What else? The Holy Spirit. What else? His precious promises. Fourthly, new nature. And fifthly, a way out of the world, the believer's provision. Things that God has done 
for every single person who is saved. Isn't that wonderful? Now, let's talk about the believer's progress. Secondly, the believer's progress. Beginning there in verse 5, he says, For this very reason. What's he talking about there? Because of what he's just said about what God has done. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And so here he begins talking about the next stage of the Christian life. What we call sanctification sanctification and so while you and I enjoy grace and peace we are not to sit back saved and satisfied we're not to put the cruise control on Christians sometimes think they can come to church sit back listen Go home, coast all week, come back next week. Somehow or another, growth is just going to happen. I guess some think just if I close my Bible and lay it under my pillow at night and sleep on it, something's going to happen. Some Christians ask, why doesn't this Christian business work? Well, God's the initiator, but you've got to follow. God begins a good work in you. God continues it, and God completes it. But you and I have to yield. We have to submit. We have to obey. An analogy would be the physical birth. At birth, we're given everything we need. We're born complete, but we've got to grow. And to grow, what do you have to do? Exercise, sleep right, eat right. Go to school, train your mind. Likewise, when it comes to your faith, you have a role to play. Turn with me back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and beginning there in verse 12. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. Now, The word in ancient times was used of a field that you already owned. Just like salvation. God does that. That's God's work. If you're saved, you're saved. That's God's work. And nothing can take that away. I don't think there's anything you can do to lose your salvation. Okay? But just like a field, you might own a field, but you had to work. It's the same Greek word that was used, again, of of owning a field, but to get the produce out of it, you had to work it. 
It was also used of people who owned a mine. But to get the precious stones or the minerals out of the mine, you had to go into the mine and work the mine. If you're in Christ, you already have salvation. But just as you would work a field to maximize the crop or work a mine to get the minerals out, there's some things you and I need to do. And we're to do it, Paul says here in Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. Folks, in other words, this is, this is, this is serious stuff we're about. Okay? The Christian life is very serious stuff we're about. It's not something to play around with. Now, Peter is saying we're to never get over it, we're to never forget what God has done for us in Christ. We're not to sit back and be saved and satisfied. So Peter says there are some things that we are to do with diligence. He says here, make haste and add virtue. Again, verse 5, 2 Peter 1, verse 5, make haste to add virtue. Now, to the Greek philosophers, this word referred to the fulfillment of a thing. In other words, becoming what you are to be. Just like a farmer's field was virtuous if it produced crops, your life will be virtuous if you become what God wants you to be. When you're yielded to God and you're living out God's purposes for your life, you are virtuous. That's the word. Becoming what God intended you to be. Living out God's purpose for your life. There's also the idea of moral purity in the word. If we're virtuous in living for God will not be living in the filth of the world and we will be following God's purposes for our life. Then he says, secondly here, make haste and add knowledge. Make haste and add knowledge. Folks, there is an information piece to the Christian life. Now, we know the Christian life is is application. We've got to live our faith, right? We've got to be different. But there's an information piece to it. Studying God's Word, learning His Word learning the great doctrines of our faith, we've got to know what we believe. We've got to know what we're supposed to believe. God's given us 66 books in the Bible, the canon of Scripture. There is an information piece to the Christian life. You and I need to learn. How are we going to know what to practice if we don't even know what it is we're supposed to be practicing? 
1 Timothy 4.16 says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. And so we are to be knowledgeable of the things of God. And that's the emphasis here. And then he goes on thirdly to say, Make haste and add self-control. So again, first of all, virtue. Secondly, knowledge. Thirdly, we're to add self-control. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who captures a city. Proverbs 25.28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Self-control. By the way, isn't that one of the aspects of the ninefold fruit of the spirit? Self-control. And so if the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you if you're a born-again believer. And if you and I are yield, yielded to Him, walking in the Spirit, not grieving Him, self-control should be one of the aspects of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit that's occurring in our lives. So through the power of the Spirit, you can overcome that bad temper if that's your problem. You can overcome a loose tongue if that's your problem. You can overcome worry and anxiety if that's your problem. As a believer walking in the Spirit, you can practice self-control. And he says, to your faith, you're to add self-control. Now think of the importance of that too for your testimony. Here's a born-again believer who does not have self-control in his life and he gets involved in something he shouldn't. He loses his testimony. Doesn't lose his salvation, but he loses his testimony. So Peter says, make sure that you're adding self-control to your faith. Then also, he says, fourthly, make haste and add perseverance. The Greek word here is hupomene. It refers to the ability to bear up under a load. Bearing up under a load. How about some of those days when nothing seems to go right? The Christian life in general has to be carried out with patience and you know God's word tells us that God God will send us trials to work patience into your life be careful about praying for patience because the Bible says tribulation worketh patience as God's children we are to display hupomene perseverance or patience Fifthly, he says, make haste and add godliness there in verse 6. We're to, allow, we're to allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and make us more like Jesus. 
Verse 7 says we're to make haste and add brotherly kindness. Philadelphos is the word. Love of the brethren. Phileo, friendship, love, and Delphos, brothers. Those two words put together. Philadelphos is the Greek word here. We're to practice a kind heart, a brotherly affection toward one another. Next, he says we're to make haste and add love. Verse 7. What do you think the word there for love is? Agape. What's agape love? Self-sacrificing type love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing. Agape love is when you look at the other person and you can forget about your needs and what you want and you, you, you act in their interest. Agape love. John 3, 16. Exactly. The Bible says as Christians we're to go beyond the world's version of love. The world's version of love is you pat me on the back and I'll pat you on the back. I'll love those who love me. I'll be kind to those who are kind to me. But in Christianity, we're to even love our enemies. Jesus said, if you just love those who love you right back... You, you've not gone beyond the Pharisees at all. Anybody can do that. The Pharisees did that. So these seven things here, Peter lists as marks of Christian growth. These are indicators that sanctification is taking place. Are you able to look at your life and see that to your faith there's a growing virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and, and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Are those, are those things growing in your life? Thirdly, the believer's prosperity. The believer's prosperity. Look at verse 8 and following. For if these qualities are, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As long as we refuse to grow up, we limit what God can do with us. That's the tragic thing about Christians who are saved and satisfied. They limit what God is able to do through them or what God will do through them. But when we practice the arithmetic that he talked about in verses 5 through 7, look at what happens. He says there in verse 8, we are useful to the Lord. We are useful to the Lord. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective. 
Not only are we useful to the Lord, we're fruitful. Verse 8. Again, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Verse 9, we avoid being shameful. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. A Christian who is not putting priority on their spiritual growth is blind and short-sighted. They have forgotten what it is that Christ did for them. Or they're not living in daily gratitude. Remember what Paul said about that in the book of Romans after going through the great doctrines of being lost in sin and then saved. Paul gets to Romans chapter 12 and says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in, in, in light of the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In light of everything God's done for you to save you, live your life as a living sacrifice. Which is your spiritual act of worship, Paul says there in Romans 12 too. It's the fitting way to live. If you and I are living in gratitude over our salvation, we will be growing. We will be being sanctified. And if we're not, the scripture says we're blind, we're short-sighted. We've forgotten what Christ did for us in redeeming us from our sins and a, and, a, and a devil's hell. And then he says in verse 10, also we gain confidence. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You know what? The Bible tells us to examine our... 2 Corinthians 13 and right here both tell us to examine whether or not we're really saved. Examine your faith to make sure you really are in the faith. Examine yourself to make sure of your calling and election. Has God truly saved you? Are you a new creation in Christ? Well, what Peter is saying here is if you are growing in your, if you're a new creation in Christ and you're growing in your faith and becoming more like Jesus Christ, that's evidence in and of itself that you are redeemed. If nothing's happening in your Christian life and no growth, then you need to look yourself in the mirror and say, was I truly redeemed to begin with? Because a new creation in Christ, it ought to show. So Peter is saying, you'll gain confidence through doing all this. You'll gain assurance. So what's the believer's prosperity? Not the prosperity the world thinks about, but the believer's prosperity, you'll be useful to the Lord, you'll be fruitful, you'll avoid being shameful, and you will gain great confidence. Not only that, there's one more. We're not done yet. He says in verse 11, we lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven. He says, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. 
Jesus Christ. Storing up treasure in heaven. That's the consummation of our salvation or glorification. So Peter is taught in this one passage here about regeneration, sanctification, and he ends in glorification. Right? It's so clear the way it's outlined here. Regeneration, what God does. Sanctification, what God continues to do. But you need to yield yourself to Christian disciplines. And then ultimately, glorification. Your treasures in heaven. Are you redeemed? Are you born again? Have you experienced the miracle of the new birth? Again, you can't do it through your own efforts. It's Christ's work in you. If he's done that work of redemption in you, the new birth, your new creation in Christ, you need to grow. You need to grow. Some translations again use the word adding to. Adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control. And you will be useful. You will see God doing things in your life. I opened up talking about Paul. You and I won't be Paul. There's only one of them. It's not even God's intention for you to be Paul. God's intention is for you to be you. But you can be you who is a vessel in God's hands. And God can accomplish his purposes through you. Bearing fruit. Don't be saved and satisfied. Is there the evidence of the new birth in your life? And are you growing? Is there the evidence of the new birth in your life? And are you growing? And if that's true, then no doubt you see in your own life how God is using you.